is that at this time we would invite our children from grades three and under uh, to head out the door for Children's Church. You see the two girls waving there at the door. Um, if you are in third grade or below, we would encourage you to follow those two young ladies out the door for Children's Church. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't always look at Joe when he's doing this, all this stuff. And so I got ahead and behind and forward and backwards. So uh, thank you for keeping us on our toes. If any of you slept in this morning, I bet you're awake now. If you have not figured out yet today, it is a special day here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church. Today is the day that we send. You've noticed a theme throughout the whole day. We're talking about we are celebrating. We are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is undeniably the boldest claim of any faith, any religion on the planet. And it is at the very heart of our faith. We believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he died on a cross for our sins, that he was buried put in a tomb and for, for three days he would laid in that tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. Simply put, there is no Christianity if there is no resurrection. This has to beg the question for us today. Should we believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? I have no doubt that there is probably somebody here that, that, that is, needs to ask that question today. As a Christian myself, I do believe that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. That it was not a figurative thing. It was not a, a, a kind of spiritual story aspect to it. It is not, well, he, 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 he rose from the dead in my heart and I just keep him alive in my heart. But I believe that Jesus rose from the dead in bodily form and that he is alive even today. However... We have to acknowledge there are still hundreds of thousands, even millions of people throughout the world who do not. And indeed, there may very well be someone in this room today or watching online this morning who also may not really believe that Jesus rose. Right off the bat, we may hear something along the lines that Jesus was just a normal guy, a teacher, maybe a particularly charismatic one or one who taught in a new way, in a new style that, that gained him lots of attention. But after years, after his, his uh, alleged death, that the stories began to change and things began to turn and suddenly he was, was recast as a resurrected deity by his followers. And so today I want to begin by taking you to the oldest part of the New Testament. We have a part in our, in our New Testament that, that is older than any other that historians have universally agreed, both secular and Christian theologians that said this is the oldest writing, the oldest thing that we have in Scripture. And believe it or not, it's not found in the Gospels. It is not from Matthew because some of us may think Matthew's the oldest because it's first. It is not even in Mark, if you thought maybe Mark was the oldest, and, 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 and that must have been first, but it is actually found in 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we read these words, and I would ask to, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. 
And I know what it says on the board, but today we're going to focus in on verses 3 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, says these words, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Caiaphas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Please be seated. Now, you may not realize this, but this passage represents one of the oldest creeds of the Christian church. A creed is a statement of belief that is, is, is intended to be memorized so for, by a whole group. So this statement, this thing that Paul's saying is, I received this, this statement and I pass this statement on to you, was him saying, listen, when I, when I saw Jesus, when I, when I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they taught me this, because this was what we believe. This is what we understood. And when I learned that, and I memorized that, then when I came to the church in Corinth, in my missionary journeys, and as people came to know Christ, I taught it to you, so that you too might memorize it, so that you would know the core beliefs of our faith. As I said a minute ago, historians, both Christian and non-Christian alike, believe that this particular passage, this particular creed, dates back to, to around about 33 AD or at the latest 41 AD. Which means that this became a saying within the church that they had memorized, that they passed on, that they shared only a few years after Jesus' death. Even just three to, to at most maybe 10 years after Jesus died, they were saying things like, he rose from the grave. This tells us right off the bat that there was simply not enough time between Jesus' crucifixion and this statement for a myth about him to be formed. Christianity began not because certain people changed the story to make it a religion, but Christianity began because the people that, be, that believed in it actually thought that Jesus had risen from the dead. This morning, I want to take a few minutes and discuss every claim that is made about Jesus in this passage to see if there is enough reason for us to believe in the resurrection. The first thing we read in our passage today is that Christ died. We've already read some of the claims about this today from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus was condemned and killed, executed via crucifixion. This is, of course, consistent in all four Gospels and the entire New Testament. Repeatedly, it is made known that Jesus died and died on a cross. On top of this, historians would all agree that the crucifixion was the regular method of execution in this time in history. This is what the Romans did. And if you were going to be executed by Roman soldiers, it was extremely likely that you, that would happen via crucifixion. So are we sure that Jesus was sentenced to death? 
We can go to, to historians from around that time. One such historian was by the name of Tacitus, who was a Roman emperor and a historian living in about the second century. He certainly thought so. Tacitus is mentioned as he tells the story of, of Emperor Nero and when he blamed Christians. And he said these, these words, The persons, persons commonly called Christians who were hated by their enemies, or excuse me, hated for their enormities, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. So even just a, a few decades after the crucifixion, as this Christian movement began to, to, to take hold and, and make its way all the way to Rome, even the historian said the people they are following, the person they are following is this man named Christ, Jesus Christ, who was killed under Pontius Pilate. It was not questioned where that was so. In fact, it was known that it was so. Are we sure that he actually died? It is highly unlikely that a Roman would have made such a mistake when it came to a crucifixion. Recently, an archaeological magazine wrote an article where they had uncovered the bones of a man who had been crucified. And it was a big deal because it was very hard to find intact bones of a crucified person. As they were discussing the, the remains and what they had found, they had these words to state. This brutal type of execution has been perfected and practiced for a long time by the Romans. All this is to say that the Roman Empire knew how to kill someone. And not only had they done it many, many times before, but they had perfected it. When we even take into account what the Gospel of John says regarding the crucifixion, when it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. That's John 19, 34. We can walk away with a tremendous amount of confidence that Jesus most certainly died and died by crucifixion. The passage goes on to say that he was buried. We see this in verse four at the beginning of it. The burial, of Jesus is, is all, the burial of Jesus all revolves around one person. And what's interesting about that is all four Gospels point to the same person. And this is the man, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea is the consistent figure in all Gospel accounts as it relates to the burial of Jesus. From in Matthew 27, which we have been focusing our, our efforts in this Gospel today, it reads this. When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in his, in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. It is important to note that there are absolutely no alternative accounts of where Jesus was buried in all of history or in all of the Bible. There is no other writing. There is no other tradition. There is nothing else out there that would even suggest that Jesus was buried by any other mean. Now think about that for a second. Nothing. No competing tradition. Consistent in every way, shape, and form that after Jesus was crucified and he died, that Joseph of Arimathea took the body and laid it in his own tomb. 
The Gospels give us these details regarding the tomb, including both its composition and its location. We see in Mark, Matthew, and, and Luke that it was a new tomb, hewn out of, out of rock. It was literally chipped away from a giant stone so that you could go inside of it. The tomb, if we look to the Gospel of John, says it was located in a garden on the hill of Golgotha. So they told us where it was. They told us how it was made. They all are consistent with the stone that was rolled in front of it. Joseph of Arimathea is also an interesting person when we look to the scriptures. The Gospel of Luke says that he was a good and righteous man. The Gospel of John says that he was a secret follower of Jesus, Jesus just like Matthew does. And Mark and Luke both say that he was a prominent member of the council that council being the Sanhedrin. It is interesting that the person who took the body of Jesus and cared for it was also a member of the body that was actively persecuting the early church. You have to think about this for a moment that the Jewish persecution of the Christians did not happen till, or excuse me, not Jewish, the Roman persecution of the Christians did not happen till much later in their existence. That it was actually at the very beginning, it was the Jews who stirred up communities. It was the Jews who did the persecuting. We need to look only into the book of Acts and we come to this figure named Saul who was a man in training to be a Pharisee, a Jew of all Jews who, who, who venomously despised the Christian and wished to see all of them destroyed. And so in the midst of this hostility between this new faith, the, the, these Christians, and, this, and, and they're at enmity with the Jews, their own brethren who want to see them crushed, that they would write gospels that say, hey, it was one of your leaders. It was a member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was the one who took care of the body of Jesus. One would think that a fabricated story that was made up would not choose such a person. On the contrary, I think that they would have picked a disciple or maybe even at most one of the women or some other person that they could in order to, to create a more consistent view of them. But instead, it is a member of the very body that was actively trying to kill the movement. When we think about what Scripture says in both Mark and Luke, that Joseph was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, it meant that not that he had money, that he would have been well-known, that they would have recognized him in the marketplace, that his name would have been attached to important things regarding the temple and the synagogue, and for them to name him as one of these secret followers of Jesus would have been easily refuted by their enemies. The Sanhedrin could have simply said, Joseph did no such thing. Joseph himself could have said that I did no such thing. Or even his children, if he had any, could have said, our father never did such a thing. And yet we have no record of that happening. Again, we have no conflicting story anywhere in all of history that anybody but Joseph of Arimathea took the body and laid it in his own tomb. This brings us to the third point, that he was raised on the third day. I think so far we can say with some confidence, and hopefully if you are on the fence maybe here today, you have some level of, of confidence going into this third point that, okay, I believe Jesus was real. 
that he was a real historical person that did die on a cross, that he was crucified by the Romans and he did die. And I'm good with the idea that, that he was buried in this tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Everything points to that is the case. If we were following any sort of respected historical method to figure out what happened, all of this would, would check. And hopefully it checks for you as well. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, in the second half, it says this, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Matthew's account tells it in this way. And the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. When we talk about the resurrection, when we talk about what we are, are, are talking about all of this morning and, and all this talk about the tomb being empty, we have to recognize that there's a lot of reasons to believe that when those women showed up, that when the disciples came thereafter, that they did, in fact, come to an empty tomb. First off, we have the simple and yet seemingly obvious fact that there was no body. All that the Sanhedrin or all that Rome would have had to do to destroy the Christian movement in an instant so that all of us would be doing something very different this morning, all they had to do was find a body. And as all this rumor started coming out and all these people started saying that Jesus was alive, all they had to do was move the stone, pull out the body and say, here he is, dead. Go home. But they couldn't do it. Because there was no body. Even the first conspiracy theory, and that's what we hear a lot today, is even now we hear nothing but conspiracy theories. The first one, it was already there in Scripture. In Matthew 28, starting in verse 12, it says, And when they had assembled with the elders and they consulted together, this is the Sanhedrin, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. Even the first excuse they ever made still could not provide the body. The reality is on Easter morning, on Sunday at daybreak, the tomb was empty. You may say to yourself, but could have they just had the wrong tomb? Maybe they just went to the wrong place. I know for my, my part, I have, have gone to visit the, the graves of, of my relatives. My grandfather is in a, a cemetery in Columbia, Missouri. And, there, and almost always, if I am home for Memorial Day, I try to go there and leave flowers. And, and I'll be honest, I walk there and I get lost. And I kind of know where he is, but I have to enlist myself and my daughters and, and my wife. And we kind of like scan the area looking for my, my grandfather's headstone. Could that have been just what happened? Could they have just walked up to the wrong tomb and it was still not in use? And they were like, oh, probably not. Matthew 27 states that the Sanhedrin put the tomb under guard and sealed it. That would have made it kind of unique, wouldn't you say? Typically, 
tombs get closed and they get left. Because not too often do people walk out of tombs. And this tomb not only had a seal around it so that you could not open it, but had guards watching it so that you would not open it. So I don't think we can really with any seriousness say that they just went to the wrong place. We also note from the passage that the first to discover the empty tomb were women. Now, I know every woman in the room is looking at me right now going, what's your problem, man? Of course women were there first because women get up earlier. Men were probably still looking for their underwear with a flashlight on their phone. (laughs) However, if we go back into history, which is when they didn't have phones with flashlights, women were not considered reliable witnesses. Josephus, a famous Jewish historian around the time of Jesus, had this to say about women. He said that their testimony should not, be admitted, should not even be admitted in any trial because women were unreliable. I am not saying that's true. Sandy, don't key my car. I am just saying that's what Josephus said. And so for the Christian movement to then begin by saying, well, the first people to discover that Jesus' body was gone was women would have made the whole Jewish people go, really? In fact, I heard one Christian historian put it this way. He said, it would have been shameful for the disciples to learn of the resurrection from women instead of discovering it themselves. And yet, as we go to the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them point to women as the ones who discovered the empty tomb. The only reason that you would have put that in your testimony, in the testimony of Matthew, in the testimony of John, in the accounts of Luke and of Mark would be because that's what happened. The women came and they found the tomb empty. Lastly, As it relates to the resurrection, we see a complete lack of any sort of flashy or sensational event surrounding this resurrection account. Often those who would point to Jesus being some kind of myth would have to look at other myths of the time to say, okay, does it fit the mold of mythic talk at that time? And the reality is it just doesn't. In fact, the most fantastical story of the resurrection is what we find in Matthew 28. And in Matthew 28, we read of this earthquake that happened and, and, and angels coming down and descending and moving the stone and sitting on top of it. But if we were looking at mythic language, mythic poetry, the stuff that was happening around the same time, this is a far cry from that. An angel coming down, moving a rock and sitting on it is not exactly what they meant by mythic talk at the time. Instead, every single story of the gospel does not show, every single story of the gospel has, does not show, completely omits Jesus walking out of the tomb. I mean, think about that for just a second. We all believe that Jesus rose from the grave. 
But if we go through Scripture, you don't see one time them actually talking about him leaving the tomb. Only that it was discovered that he was gone. Mythic language of this time would, have, would have, have, have shown a great and wonderful event and all sorts of craziness and almost nonsensical things happening as Jesus walks out of the tomb. But in the gospel accounts, it's just empty. In fact, when the resurrected Jesus does appear, and as he meets his followers... We see in John chapter 20, verse 14, that Mary Magdalene mistakes him for a gardener and asks him where the body of Jesus is. We see almost no description of the post-resurrected Jesus at this time. And only descriptions are made much later and then eventually in John's revelation. All of this is just a further indication that the accounts found in the gospel were actually eyewitness accounts and not just myth or narrative. This means something for us today. When Matthew said that Jesus rose from the grave, it was because Matthew believed that Jesus rose from the grave. And not just believed it, but believed it because he saw it. He saw the resurrected Jesus. John writes because he saw the resurrected Jesus. John Mark, when he wrote his gospel, it was because the people he talked with, like Peter, saw the resurrected Jesus. This brings us to our last point. Our ancient creed ends with a list of all the people who saw the resurrected Jesus. To me, this is perhaps the most convincing argument for the resurrection of Christ. And it was that those people who believed in him had seen him alive. Found within this creed are six undeniable facts as they relate to the resurrection. And I would present those, some of those you've already heard. Number one, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, that very soon after his death, his followers had a real experience that they thought was an actual appearance of the risen Jesus. Number three, that their lives were transformed as a result, even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith in the resurrection message. Now think about that for just a second. Every single apostle, with the exception of John, gave his life because they believed they saw Jesus alive. And John did not get off easy. Every single one of them. We see from our, our passage today that these things were taught early and soon after the crucifixion. We know this from the passage that we read today and by most historical accounts. Number five, James, Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experience with whom he believed to be the resurrected Christ. Pause there for a second. Jesus' brother, his younger brother, was willing to die for what he believed 
because he believed that he had seen his brother resurrected from the grave. And number six, that the Christian persecutor Paul, who we mentioned earlier was called Saul, became a believer after a similar experience. Historians outside of Scripture affirm some of these points as well. Josephus, who we mentioned earlier, affirmed this point as it relates to James, Jesus' brother. He said these words, Now, Festus was now dead, and Albinus was, up, was but upon the road, as he, and this he is, as Ananus, the, the high priest at the time, assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, whose name was James, and also some others, for some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them, as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. This story was about a transition in leadership as Festus had died and they were sending the next Roman leader to Palestine over to Jerusalem in that area. And at that point in time, the high priest knew that, that the previous ruler was gone, Roman ruler was gone, and they were waiting for the next one. And during that time, he could get away with whatever he wanted. And see, if you remember, like during Jesus' time, the reason that Jesus was crucified, which was a Roman means of execution and not stoned, which would have been a Jewish means of execution, was because they had outlawed the Jews from doing capital punishment. And so the only way someone could be killed was if the Romans killed them. But this high priest, knowing that they were in the midst of transition, said, no one can stop us from executing people in this time period. Let's hastily kill everyone that we want to kill. Now, doesn't that sound like a great high priest? That is not going to be at the next Tunnel Hill business meeting. And so hastily, he grabbed James, Jesus' brother, along with other members of the church in Jerusalem, brought them before the Sanhedrin, and had them stoned to death before the next governor came. Now, I love my brother. My brother's a great man. I'm proud of my brother. He's a good father. He's a hard worker. He's almost as good looking as I am. He has hair. I know, it's shocking. And not fair, by the way. But let me tell you what I know about my brother. He ain't Jesus. He was not sinlessly perfect. And I don't really think that Jesus would die on a cross for even me let alone the entire world. But James believed. James believed that his older brother, Jesus of Nazareth, was God in the flesh. He did not believe that. When Jesus was doing ministry around the world. In fact, we even see in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that Jesus' family, which would have included James, his brother, went after him because they were worried about his behavior and they had thought that he was out of his mind. Now that I have, I, that I have thought about my brother before, but never that he was the resurrected Savior. The only reason that someone like James and his other brother Jude and even Paul, the persecutor of the church, 
would go from thinking that Jesus was crazy to be willing to give up their lives for the sake of the message that he had and the gospel in his name was that they saw him resurrected. And yet when we look to history, that's exactly what we see. James, Paul, Peter, and all the like were radically transformed and willing to go to their very death because they believed in a resurrected Jesus. Now I say all of that to say this. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. If you ask me how I know he lives, well, the evidence is pretty good. This is what Peter wanted to remind the church in Corinth, and this is what we need to remember today. To close out, I want to read a little bit more from 1 Corinthians 15, just a few verses down where it says this, but now Christ has been risen from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If you are with us today and you have a desire to be made alive in Christ, you need only place your hope and faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to explain that a special way here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church. And we have a thing that we call the three circles. And, and, and those three circles completely revolve around the fact, here it comes, revolve around the fact that Jesus is alive. See, we believe that there is a God in heaven. And that that God created all things and he created all those things in, on purpose and with a purpose. And yet we also believe that, that even though we have been created on purpose with a purpose, that we have departed from that purpose to find our own. And that's called sin. And sin is quite simply doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want it done, regardless of what God's design and God's purpose is in our life. And when we depart from God's design in our life, we find ourselves in a place of brokenness. And brokenness in a lot of times is what leads us to churches in the first place. Because we feel deep down in our heart that we were made for something more. And we're not there. We just sense that we are not right, that something is wrong. And we'll try to fix that wrongness in our, that brokenness in us a lot of different ways. We'll, we'll put the pressure on our kids and try to live vicariously through them. We try to numb the pain with stuff, money, maybe drugs and alcohol, something else, fun, recreation, toys. But we come to the realization that no matter how we try to escape brokenness, we can't escape brokenness for brokenness. And that's where the gospel comes in. And the gospel message is the message of the resurrection. That Jesus Christ 
God's only son, came. That he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death for your sins and my sins, that he was crucified and he died on a cross and he was buried. But the crucified Jesus rose from the grave three days later, paying the penalty from sin, for sin and defeating death and conquering our brokenness. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we present that this way by saying that if you repent and believe, First, you have to believe that Jesus is the resurrected Jesus, that he is alive, that there is no body of Jesus hidden somewhere in a lost tomb, that there has been no conspiracy or no swoon or no other bit of nonsense, that indeed Jesus died and God raised him from the grave. That everything about Jesus was true. If you will believe that, and that you will turn away from your sin, that's what repenting means, and believe and cry out and make Jesus the Lord of your life. If you will do that, then you will be saved from your brokenness and be able to recover and pursue God's design for your life again. Now, I've told you today, not all, but most of the reasons why someone like me would believe in the resurrected Jesus. Well, the question is, what do you believe? Where are you on this, this little picture here? If you're like me, you know you're not in God's design because I do my own thing all the time. And I usually, when I do my own thing, I reap my own consequences. I cannot tell you how many times I said just one sentence too much. I texted one text too many. And I go, shouldn't have done that. I just messed up. Sometimes I can just tell by the look on my wife's face how much I've messed up. So I know I'm not there. Well, if I'm not there and I haven't yet believed in the gospel and turned to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, then there's only one place I can be. And it's there in brokenness. And if that's where you find yourself today, then I would invite you to believe what I believe, to believe what many of us believe, to believe in a risen Savior who is in the world today. If you would like to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, if you would like to believe and, and turn to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would invite you to do that today. And one of the ways you can do that is I will be standing right up front here. And in just a few moments, Joe is going to come up and he's going to sing a song. And as we sing that song, if you would like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can come forward. I'll be honest, if that is not your thing and you are scared to death to come up and talk to a bald-headed guy at the front of the church building, that's okay. But I hope that you are around somebody that does believe and that you can share, talk to. But I would implore you today, as we go on to deviled eggs and ham and Easter egg hunts, and I got a whole bunch, I hope, of really good chocolate waiting for me at home, not that I need it, that you would not rush off to that without first considering this. And if I've convinced you today 
that Jesus is alive, then I implore you today to make him the Lord of your life. Let's, pl- let's pray. Our gracious God and King, we come before you now, and God, we stand in awe of your goodness. God, we can look at the evidence. We can even use our our reasoning, rational minds and see that all the evidence is best explained. Everything we know is best explained by the fact that Jesus is alive. That he rose from the grave three days later. That he was, in fact, the Christ, the son of the living God. Lord, I pray for each and every one here that as they see what we've talked about, as they have heard the testimony and the evidence presented, God, that they would believe. And in believing that they would surrender their lives to Christ. God, we praise you that you did not send your son to just be a mystery. But you sent your son so that we might know him and that we might know that he is everything he claimed to be. And so, God, I pray that those in this room today and those that are watching online will surrender their lives to Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins. Lord, we ask this in his name. Amen.